Loving Father, we are so thankful that as we call upon you, we call upon you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we are thankful that we don't just serve a king, we serve the King of Kings. And it's because of his amazing love that we are able to have any hope in this world. So Father, I thank you for the Sabbath we've enjoyed. It's been a hot one, but Lord, it has been a blessed one. So many things have been happening today, so many moving pieces. And Lord, you've allowed us to play a small part in this grand machinery of your Sabbath, so to speak. But Father, as we come tonight to close out the Sabbath, Lord, we're not here just to spend time. We're here to receive another blessing. And so, Father, as we begin tonight, I want to lift up Pastor Steve Conway. Lord, you know I love that brother, love his family, and just thank you for the ministry that he has. Lord, he blesses so many lives, he and his family. So, Lord, we just lift him up. He is your servant. And so we ask that you would speak through him. We ask that your Holy Spirit would anoint his lips. Father, we want to figure out how we can own our faith just a little more deeply. Maybe even some of us for the first time. So Lord, encourage us. Draw us closer to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we leave here deeper in our faith commitment with Jesus because of having to listen to Pastor Conway. So we thank you, Father, for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Steve, I want to invite you to come on up. Thank you, praise team. Appreciate your help very, very much. If you don't know Pastor Conway, you're in for a treat tonight. For those of you who do know him, you know that I'm telling you the truth. Pastor Conway, he pastors down in the Detroit area. I have the privilege of having him as one of my district pastors down there that I get to serve with. He pastors the Detroit Northwest Church and the Cherry Hill Church. And of course, his first lady sitting right there, she's not paying me. There she is. I've got, I've got Mrs. Conway on the radar now. That's his first lady there that serves by his side and I tell you, you need to spend some time with Miss Tamara, too, tonight. She is she's a blessing, too. But uh, it is an honor to invite my brother to come up and share with us. And, uh, brother, I just want you to know what a blessing you are to, to me as a, as, as a brother in Christ, as a fellow, fellow laborer in our field down there, rolling in the big D, doing our little part, right? Right. So uh, bless us, brother, and uh, God bless you. Thank you for sharing tonight. Tonight. I was asked to share with you a little bit about um, my testimony since we're, we're talking about own it. And um, I've tried to break this up into four different por portions or four parts. And uh, the first one is resistance. Just to, by way of introduction again, Stephen Conway, pastor down in the Metro Detroit area, District 12, Detroit Northwest, Cherry Hill. My wife is Tamara, and we have four children, Israel, Abigail, Gabriel, and Angel. And uh, been here in Michigan for about 10 years. Prior to that, um, was in New York and in New Jersey as a youth pastor. Prior to that, was down at a self-supporting school in Tennessee called Lower Brook Academy for about four years as a boys dean and outreach coordinator and everything else you do at a self-supporting institution. Uh, but I'm going to begin uh, sharing my testimony a little bit before that. Um, and I start with resistance because of a profound passage of scripture. Um, I think it's on our next slide. Jeremiah, this is one of my, has become one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. What does that say? Can you read it together? The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved with. Man, can, are y'all tired or something? <laughs> Sabbath lunch must have been real good, huh? You're still involved in the lay activities, all right? Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I done what? Have I drawn thee? So I wanted to begin by talking about resistance because I think before any of us is ever one to Christ, our very existence begins with resistance to that which God longs to do for each and every one of us. 
According to this Bible passage here, God says that he has drawn us with loving kindness. And yet, if there are unconverted men and women, it means that we have been resisting what God has been attempting to do. In my family, my great-grandmother married a Seventh-day Adventist man. My great-grandmother married a Seventh-day Adventist man, and so uh, Adventism was introduced into my family. Obviously, at that time, I wasn't even thought of, and uh, neither was my mother, in fact, but she would come later on. My mother was not raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, but her grandmother, being my great-grandmother, of course, took her to church like many grandmothers do. And so my mother's only recollection of church was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so when my mother had her conversion experience and was prompted that she needed to return to church, and at this time she had two sons, my older brother, Antonio, we call him Dante, that's his middle name, and then me. She had two sons at this time, and the only church that she knew to return to was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so she brought my two brothers, uh, excuse me, my brother and I to church, her two sons, and we began attending church. I was two years old. How old was I? I was about two years old. Can we get that next picture? That, that is a picture of me at about two or three years of age, um, looking like I was trying to do something with a hairbrush and some nappy hair, but the Lord is good anyhow. And so that was about the, the time that I began attending church. So I say all that to say that I have been, I have been going to Seventh-day Adventist church for a very, very long time. But even though I was going to church, I was ignorant about surrender. I was ignorant about surrender. Now, growing up in church, and I grew up at a, in a time when churches were packed. At least I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. There was not one church that you could go to on Sabbath morning that was not overflowing. I mean, literally from wall to wall, sometimes uh, if the choir weren't, wasn't singing, there were people seated in the choir loft. We had a, an extra sanctuary in our church. You would have to open two massive doors and people would be seated there. We held 10 efforts every summer. I mean, I heard, I believe, uh, some of the most powerful and dynamic preaching ever as I was growing up. And so I cannot tell you how many times I sat in a church service and tears filled my eyes as I was convinced and convicted that Jesus was coming and I was convinced and convicted that if he were to come, that I would be lost. And yet, throughout all of that time, there was a tremendous amount of ignorance about what it meant to surrender. So even though I was coming to church and even though I was hearing powerful sermons and even though I would go home weeping with new, uh, uh, um, a new zeal to get my life together and be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, the truth was that I was ultimately resisting the work that God needed to do in my life. I was resisting the work that God wanted to do in my life. In fact, my experience was somewhat like a quote, and I have to apologize I didn't have it for you this evening. But in this quote, it talks about a patchwork religion, a patchwork religion. Now, I know what patches are because I have two boys and uh, the oldest of them, the oldest of them, thank you, is... Um, He'll be turning 14, and the youngest one is Gabriel here. And these brothers know how to wear out pants, and they wear them out right in the knees. And so if you want to fix that without buying a new pair of pants, you got to do what? You got to put a patch on it, right? But uh, in this particular quotation, um, it says that a patchwork religion is of no value. Many hope or wish to become Christians by correcting this or that habit, they are beginning in the wrong place. So the concept of trying to change this or that in one's life is an erroneous 
idea. It simply will not work. But that was my experience. You know, the preacher is preaching about wasting time. Oh, Lord, I've been wasting time. Lord, help me to stop wasting time. The preacher is preaching about listening to worldly music and being, oh, Lord, I'm so worldly. Help get the world out of me so I can be ready to live with you in heaven. The preacher is preaching about caring too much about what tennis shoes you wear. Now, oh, Lord, I love my tennis shoes. Help me to stop loving my tennis shoes. You know what I'm talking about, right? So whatever the flavor of the week is, I want to give that to God without actually getting to the very root of what it is that the Lord wants to do for me. But let me let me read to you what uh, another example of what was going on. when We talk about this, this concept of resisting God. I'm resisting God. Now, notice I'm resisting God while I'm in church, while I'm where I'm in church, yet resisting God. And part of that resistance is because of my ignorance, because of my what? My ignorance. I am going about with a patchwork experience. Uh, hopefully this thing works right. Okay, okay. All right. This is from Steps to Christ, page 26. It says, the sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus. A knowledge of the plan of salvation will lead him to the foot of the cross in repentance for his sins, which have caused the sufferings of God's dear Son. Now, that's that's an amazing and powerful quotation. The most powerful force in the entire universe is the love of God. And we read in Jeremiah 31, 3, that God is using that love to draw us to himself. And yet it is possible for you and I to neutralize the most powerful force in all of the universe. How can we neutralize the most powerful force in the universe? By resisting. By saying no. Or by giving God something less than what he asked for. And I'll explain that in a minute. So. I was going through this experience roundabout, roundabout, and I. I have to tell you this, that I don't really I don't really share. In fact, I don't think I've ever publicly done it, shared my testimony as such. I have only told portions and parts of it because uh, I do not want to glorify sin. Um, but tonight, I will, in the sake or for the sake of glorifying God, I will tell you what the Lord has done for me, at least a part of what God has done for me. Because I, I'm a firm believer that one of the greatest evidences of God's miraculous power in our lives is not when people can tell where we've come from, but when people cannot tell where we've come from, when people look at us and listen to us and they have no clue of where we've been, that means that God's work has been drastic. It has been thorough and he is still in the process of making us into what he would have us to be. After going through this roundabout experience, resisting God because I was never giving him what he wanted. I was baptized at the age of 13. I love to read. So I went through, uh, I remember going to the Christian bookstore and uh, finding Jack Chick publications. Anybody familiar with those? Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, nobody's familiar with those? Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, anyway, uh, you know, Jesuit, conspiracy, rock music, all of that stuff. Anyway, I got all of them and read through every last one of them. I grabbed Amazing Facts, Bible Studies, read through all of them. Went through uh, uh, the Daniel and Revelation seminars, both Daniel read through all of them. I mean, there wasn't a question about the Bible that you could ask me that I would not be able to answer. So at 13, I was baptized. I was baptized out in Oberlin, Ohio. Still remember the pastor, Harcourt King, who baptized me there. But after my baptism at 13, it seemed as though I just became so wicked. So wicked. One of the problems was I had attended up until 13, a Seventh-day Adventist Academy in Cleveland, Ohio, Raymond Jr. Academy. And uh, it was time to go to high school. But when it was time to go to high school, my parents could not afford to send both my brother and I to an Adventist boarding academy. So my brother was the one who got in trouble a lot. And uh, so like most parents, they said, if anybody needs Jesus, it's certainly this brother. So they shipped him off 
to Mount Vernon Academy, and um, I had to stay home in Cleveland, Ohio, and I ended up attending John Hayes Senior High School. And let me tell you that I cried. I went up into my room and I cried because I did not want to go to a public high school because I had, I had been in public school and I knew the type of personality, the type of mindset that I had. And um, ultimately, I ended up there in public school and all, all the things that I feared actually came to pass. I'm going to jump over a lot of that. By the time I was in the 11th grade, um, I was not doing the things that I needed to do. And here's my, my dad right here. And my dad always told me, you know, if, if you ever, well, he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said is, if you ever stay out past a certain time, then just don't come home. Just stay there, you know. And so uh, I was in a place that I shouldn't have been up to no good. And um, I, I ended up, literally, I, I tried my very best to make it home. And um, I could not make it home until the buses began to run the next morning. And I came in and I was expecting, you know, uh, I was expecting all the wrath of Almighty God to come down on me. I was shocked because my mother and father were sitting on the sofa. And um, they had one question. They said, Stephen, why did you do it? I'm like, what? Why did I do it? What type of question is that? Ground me for life. Tell me I'm not going to eat. You're going to starve me. Chain me in the basement. Never allow me to see the light of, the light, of, light of day again. I'm ready for that type of response. And yet it was a simple and profound question. Why did you do it? Long story short, wasn't able to answer it. And so I packed this enormous duffel bag and I left. I was 17 years old. My mom was at the driveway crying like most moms do. Oh, no, son, you know, the Lord is going to take care. Okay, mom. And I remember I walked out, walked down the driveway and I jumped on the bus. I went to my aunt's house and that began uh, a period of time where I was living back and forth between several places. One of the places I was living was in a, um, a city projects. And I was living with one of my cousins who was a drug dealer. And I was, I mean, literally, they would go to the door with a, a double barrel shotgun in one hand. And who is it? Then they would bring out, you know, big wads of, uh, of marijuana and other types of things. And they was, and I'm, I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. Been raised in Seventh-day Adventist all my life. Went to Raymond Junior Academy. I was in Pathfinders and all of these other things, Camperees, you name it, 13 Sabbath memory verses, stars on the attendance chart in Sabbath school. And yet here I am lounging up in a drug house. Another place I was living just happened to be with a young lady, 21 years of age. I'm 17. I'm thinking, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. You know, I got a woman as though 21 years old makes you a woman. But this is what you think when you're unconverted and a 17-year-old. So I'm going back and forth between all of these places. And I remember there was one particular, um, one, of the, one of the things that I told myself is, I'm always going to go to church. I'm always going to go to church. Now, you may ask yourself, why would you, why would you think something like that? Well, mainly because of my mom. I knew I was going to have to see my mom at some point in time. And I knew my mom was going to pull one of those mom sobs on me. You know how your mother does if you've got a Christian mother. Oh, the Lord loves you and he wants you. And I was, going to have, I was going to be able to tell her, Mom, I go to church every week. What are you talking about? But I deliberately chose to go to a church that was on the other side of Cleveland so that my mother couldn't know that I was going to church. So that when she tried to accuse me of not going to church, I could tell her that, in fact, I had been attending church all the while I was living like a child of the devil and not a child of God. But one, one, uh, one evening or one morning, I woke up, Sabbath morning, it's time to go to church. And I had been doing this for so long. Time to go to church. Okay, not yet. Well, if you don't get up right now, then you'll miss Sabbath school. Well, 
that's all right, I'll miss Sabbath school. Woke up again. Okay, time to get up, time to go to church. No, not right now. Well, if you don't get up and go right now, then you'll miss the beginning of 11, 11 o'clock service. Now, you know, in the city, church lasts till 1.30, 2 o'clock. That's when you get out and you just start potluck after that. So I'm like, okay, you're going to miss the start. Went back to sleep, woke up again. Okay, if you don't get up and go now, then you're going to miss the service. Okay, okay. And I reasoned. And this all happened within a matter of moments. Okay, I'll miss the service. I went back to sleep, and within a, a, a number of minutes, I was awakened again with the thought, you said that no matter what, you would always go to church. You said that. You promised that you would always go to church, and, and you promised that along with, I'm never going to do drugs, I'm never going to drink. By the way, even though I stayed in a house where drugs were sold and people were using drugs and people were drinking all around me and smoking all around me, you know, I never did it. I never smoked. I never drank. I mean, I would sit up till three o'clock in the morning playing cards and gambling, never drank, never smoked. I mean, I guess gambling was bad, too, but I never drank, never smoked, never did that. And all the while I was telling myself I'm in control. I'm in control. I can be around people who are doing things that I don't do, and I'm in control. But on that morning, the Spirit of God helped me to recognize that I was not in control. Here was something you told yourself you would never do, and yet here you are. And if you could do this, what about the drinking? What about the smoking? What about all the other things that you've said you will never do? And for the first time, as I said, I recognized that I was not in control and I became afraid. I became afraid, afraid of what my life would be without me having any say or control. Long story short, I'll skip over a lot of things. I ended up moving back into my, uh, into my parents' home. And that is a wonder of wonders itself. I was 18 now, and it was about a month or so before I was getting ready to graduate from high school, and um, there I was. Now, while I was, while I was uh, staying in these nefarious situations, my brother, my older brother, was working with an evangelist at the time, and he called me. I don't know how he got the phone number to this day. I don't even think he knows, but he called me where I was, and he said, Steve, Everyone here is praying for you. I was so gone, I cursed him out and told him, don't ever call me again. Hung up the phone on him. Well, here I was back in my parents' house. My brother calls me and says, Steve, why don't you come out to Las Vegas so that you can go canvassing with me? And it was by a miracle of God's grace that I said yes, because I still wasn't converted. But at that time, I wanted to get out of Cleveland. I just briefly moved back into the house with my parents, went out on uh, for graduation night. And, you know, sometimes you think when you're going to give give yourself to God or do something that's spiritual, you want to get the last bit of sin out. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about, but I want to get the last bit of sin out. And so I stayed out so long. I had a rental car, a Honda Accord. I pulled up in the driveway windows down and just fell asleep, had tried to get out all the dirt out of my system because I'm going to go canvassing. And I was sitting there drooling on the windowsill. And I, I woke up and my dad was just looking at me, shaking his head like this. And he said, scoot over. Mom and dad had packed my bag and had put it in the trunk. They literally, I had the same clothes on. They literally drove me to the airport and I caught the first thing smoking from Cleveland out to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I began to go door to door with my unconverted self. I was surrounded by folks from Weimar and Country Haven Academy and uh, people who drank smoothies and, 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 and wanted bean burritos and, and, and all of these things. And I was just like, man, what in the world is going on? Uh, I'm, I'm jumping over a lot of stuff there. But my brother and I, we, we got into a fight one night. 
he's the one who invited me there and we end up getting into a fight. He wanted to slap box with me. Just we, you know, brothers play around and big brother is always supposed to beat little brother. But when little brother is, uh, you know, not doing things the way he's supposed to do, little brother tends to beat big brother. So on that day, I beat big brother rather bad, hit him a couple of times. And so we started to fight. And this was my excuse to get out, to leave. Well, um, as I went back into Las Vegas Junior Academy, getting ready to call and abandon all of this canvassing, because I wasn't doing very well either. Yeah, everybody was jumping in at the end of the day. Praise the Lord. And these girls from California and Oregon were pulling out wads like I had only seen dope dealers have. And they were like, oh, the Lord has just blessed us so good. I'm like, oh, man, I've never seen that much money in some little girl's hand. They're like, Steve, how did the Lord bless you? I'm like, hey, can I talk to you when we get back? Got like 75 cents. Got out three happy D's. Brother was getting beat down. 120 degrees in the heat. I'm just taking a serious beating. I'm coming in. Everybody else is praising the Lord. I'm like, what am I doing here? On that night, I go back into the Las Vegas Junior Academy. And I say, I'm out. That's it. I'm gone. I hear a voice say to me, Stephen, if you leave now, you'll be lost. What? If you leave now, you'll be lost. I, I think this is my brother. He's gotten a dose of a guilty conscience. And now he wants to influence me after he has tried to kill me. Right. So I look around Las Vegas Junior Academy. No one is there. It's empty. Checked every hallway, every room. Everyone had left on a Saturday night. My brother wasn't there. I was there by myself. And I believe that the Lord spoke to me and told me that I was at a turning point in my life. I went into a dark corner and there was nothing illuminating uh, that corner of the school building except for an exit sign. I laid down prostrate on the floor and began to talk to God and pour out my heart. Lord, I don't love you. Lord, I don't desire spiritual things. Lord, I, I, I enjoy doing and I named off all the things that I enjoyed doing and I want to continue doing those things. I don't see myself ever changing, but I'm no fool. I don't want to be lost. And I stayed there and I wept and I prayed and I wept and I prayed. And God did something miraculous for me that night. God completely changed my heart. You know, the Bible talks about King Saul. The Bible says that he went on his way and the Lord gave him a new heart. That night on the floor in Las Vegas, of all places, my heart was turned to the Lord. The next day, this is how I know that God has creative power. The next day I got up, my mother had slid a Bible into my bag, messages to young people and the story of redemption. And I got up and I began to have worship. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how. I just opened the Bible to Genesis, opened story of redemption and started to read. Then when I finished that, I jumped into messages to young people and I did that every day. Guess what? I got up before all the smoothie drinking, bean burrito eating folks that I was with. Nobody else was awake but me. My communion with God began right there. That was the first, the first time that I could realize God doing something miraculous. I can go back and, and I can share with you other times. By the way, the servant of the Lord says that everybody cannot trace uh, a particular point in time in their lives when this or that happened. And the same was true for me. It's only over the years that I've been able to look back and see God's hand in my life in certain areas where before I had been unaware. That was the first, I would like to say, the first phase of my conversion. But I was not converted. I began to work. Well, OK, after that, I um, <laughs> one of the call porter leaders was a guy who was from some school called Heartland College. Never even heard of the place in my life. My plan was to go to Cleveland State University. You know, I had gone to Oakwood and CUC, and I'm like, nah, I can't go there. I'll end up back in the foolishness. So this guy says, oh, Heartland, it's real close to you, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And then he, he, he sends for one of their student handbooks. And I re I'm reading the student handbooks, no girlfriends. I was 17 living with mine. So I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Dress code, no jeans. Yeah, I need to stop dressing like a fool. All right. Uh, lights out at nine o'clock. 
yeah, I've been staying up for, I, I really had no structure based on the lifestyle that I was leading. And I went through everything in there. And here's a person who's just given their life to the Lord. And I said, man, this sounds like just the place for me. So I enrolled in a place and started attending school that was the exact opposite of everything I had just, I mean, I was just throwing down on steak and ribs and everything. And I'm coming into a vegan, vegetarian, soy milk drink. They don't even buy the stuff. They make it, you know, boil the soybeans, you know, get to keep the heat going, blend them up and up. complete and total 300 or excuse me, 180 degrees. But you know what? I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And um, I, I went through school there and what have you, and I ended up working at a place in Tennessee called Laurelbrook. And this was the second phase of my conversion experience. I was visited by a pastor by the name of George Sharp, retired minister. He came in and he said, Steve, I feel like God has called you to the pastoral ministry. Have you ever considered that? I said, um, not really. His brother talked to me. He had silver hair. And I loved his preaching, loved his teaching. Prayer meeting was exciting. I mean, he, this guy was a real, a real model pastor to me. He laid a, a burden on me for about an hour and a half. After that conversation, I went back into my office and I got on my knees. And up until that point, I thought I was doing really good. Wait a minute, let me. Oh, that was me in high school. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to get there in a minute. This was me at Heartland College. That was, you, you see which one is me right there? Yeah. Man, that brother was slim, wasn't he? Woo, mercy, that's from eating all that vegan and, uh, yeah, okay. But anyway, um, that night, I got on my knees and I said, wow. You mean, I thought, listen to me, friends, I thought that I had a super experience with God and I was all sold out. But here was the thing. Remember I mentioned to you about the patchwork stuff before? There were two things I said in my life that I did not want to do. One, don't want to be a pastor. Two, don't want to go back to Cleveland. Lord, don't ever take me back to Cleveland. Why? Because I know too many people. Just, I mean, I could literally, I could drive down streets, avenues, and there were places I had been and done things that I was ashamed of now. I didn't even want to be seen by those people. I didn't even want to drive down the same streets because I just felt dirty even being there. No pastoral ministry and never back to Cleveland. But on that night, up on that mountain in Tennessee, I prayed and the Lord showed me that my first, the first phase of my conversion had not really been as thorough as it needed to be. Why? Because there was a part of my life that I was unwilling to give to God. Lord, send me anywhere, just not Cleveland. Lord, I'll do anything, just not pastoral ministry. So I experienced my second conversion, my second conversion there in Tennessee. Now I mentioned to you, and I go back here. There you go. And the slide before this talks about the true force of the wheel. In a, an ever-deepening conversion experience with the Lord, and this is why, even though I had gone to a quote-unquote conservative school, which some people might have considered to be extreme, I really, I really still wasn't converted. I had learned a lot of wonderful things. I could give you prophecy studies, and I traveled around the world doing mission work and whatnot, but I had a misunderstanding. I want to help you to understand how the Lord gave me clarity on this. Philippians 2.13, for it is God which does what? Worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know what my thoughts were on that? My thoughts were, 
that I would come to God and say, Lord, take me. And then the Lord would take me. And then the Lord would tell me what to do at every phase of my life. So when it comes to the job I have to choose, God would tell me what job to choose. When it came to the woman I was to marry, God would tell me which woman to marry. When it came to uh, whether or not I was to go back to school, God would tell me, go back to school. Every decision, critical decision in my life, I felt God was going to give me his supernatural guidance and direction. But I want to suggest to you tonight that that is not how it works. You know, there was an artist who came out with a song some years back, Jesus Take the Wheel. Anybody remember that? And the concept of the song was, I'm in the passenger seat. Jesus is in the driver's seat, right? So if Jesus is in the driver's seat, then who's making all the decisions? Jesus is. I'm just along for the ride. And even though that sounds good, and it was in my mind and in my life, what I desired, Lord, look, just make me a passenger and take me through this thing and I'll be all right. In reality, that is not how God works. That's a picture of my, uh, that's me right there. That's my, my, my younger brother, my older brother, my little sister, my mom and dad at my older brother's graduation at Mount Vernon Academy. That was 93, I believe. Okay, here's what I want to get to. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 61. It will require a sacrifice. So what? To give yourself to God, but it is a sacrifice of the lower for the higher, the earthly for the spiritual, the perishable for the eternal. Listen to this, friends. God does not design that our will should be destroyed. For it is only through its exercise that we can accomplish what he would have us do. Our will is to be yielded to him. It's to be what? That we may receive it again, purified and refined and so lengthened sympathy with the divine that he can pour through us the tides of his love and power. Listen, what that passage right there says is that Jesus does not take the wheel. Jesus takes the car and Jesus refurbishes it, refines it, and gives you and I a road map for life. That's called the word of God. And then he gives us the keys to the car so that we can exercise our wheels in his behalf after he has linked our will together with his own divine will. We are in sympathy with the divine will of God, with, with the divine will of God. In one of my favorite books, the book Education, it says that each one of us is given a power akin to that of the creator, the power to think and to do. The power to what? And to do. When we are converted, God does not take away our power to think and to do. So here I was, craving and desiring of God that he would take away my power to think and to do so that he could think and do for me and make me a, a submissive passenger, as it were, in the vehicle of eternal life. And God's design was, no, Stephen, you must think and do. You must think and do not like a wild man who chases all of his carnal desires, but you must think and do like a son of the God of the universe. So even though I had information, I was missing this vitally important piece of information. The power of the wheel. This manifested itself not only in my many struggles to do what was right, but it manifested itself also in uh, my life when it was time for me to choose a bride. Now, I said that I wanted, I wanted uh, God to do everything for me. That's, the, uh, that's a picture of my wife and I. We're married in 2001. Now, I was down in Tennessee. My wife was back in Ohio. 
and she wasn't my wife at the time. And I remember talking to my older brother and I said, I think I want to ask this woman to marry me. And he said, well, what's holding you up? I said, man, I don't know, man. I think I might make the wrong decision. And he said a few simple words to me. He said, have you followed God's principles in your relationship? Yes. Her family all right with it? Yes. Your family or our family all right with it? Yes. Do you have peace? I don't know. I said, listen, man, pray. And if you've done everything right and you have peace, go ahead. I hung up the phone with him. I thought that sounded good, but I still was not ready to make the choice. And the Lord, um, the Lord helped me to understand or begin to understand fear. And here was how he did that. Uh, I was afraid that if I married this woman, that one day she would wake up and not want to be married to me anymore. I was afraid that if I married this woman, that one day she would come to me and say, Stephen, I found someone who's better than you. I was afraid that if I married this woman, and just as we're beginning to experience the wonders of life together, she gets a critical illness and dies. I had a thousand different things that I was afraid of. And the Lord, the Lord helped me to understand something. And interestingly enough, I had a good friend who was 30 or 40 years older than me at the time who counseled me. This guy, he said, Steve, I did everything right. And it was his example that really blessed me and taught me this lesson. He said, my wife was a third generation Seventh-day Adventist. He, they, her, he and his wife had attended Wildwood. He said, we counseled with WD for Z. Everybody in the church said, yes, she comes from a good family. You're a good man. Everybody who we counseled with told us, yes. He said, Stephen, we got married. We were married for 21 years. We had two boys. They were working at Wildwood. Life was great. He said, I wish that I could tell you that she was a horrible wife and a horrible mother. He said, but I can't. Every day that we were married, she was a wonderful wife and a wonderful mother. He said, one day she came in and she said, I don't want to do this anymore. He's like, what? You, you don't want to wash clothes anymore? No, I don't want to do this anymore. This, like, what, what does that mean? You don't want to live here? No, I don't want to do us. I don't want to do God. After 21 years of what he judged to be a wonderful marriage, one day she just chose. She did what? She chose to leave. And he said this to me. He said, Steve, and I really believe the Lord was speaking to me through him. He said, Steve, every day is a choice. Every day is a choice. There's no guarantee that everything is going to go right. There's no guarantee that the person you are with is going to choose you every day. And the Lord brought that home to my heart in a very real way. She could choose to love someone else. She could choose to walk away. She could choose any number of things. But that's what makes love so unique, so special. When she chooses to remain faithful to you, when you choose to remain faithful to her. It was at that point in my Christian experience that I understood how powerful choice is, not just in our marriage, relationships or in a host of other things, but especially when it comes down to you and I choosing to walk with God and to be faithful to him. So now I, under, I was beginning to understand the power of the will and how God expected me to make a choice, even though those choices will be fraught with a variety of risk. And the Lord has been good. We've been married 15 years, and hopefully we'll have many more. But my conversion story still is not done. But I'll share with you the thing that the Lord has been working with me on up to this point in my life. 
And that is, he has helped me to see and recognize who Jesus is and how essential he is to everything in my life. I mentioned to you before that, and I, I, I love to read, I love to listen to sermons. Um, I used to, and I told you, I, there's a lot of stuff I'm leaving out. I used to want to be a, a rapper, and uh, I'm, I also cut hair, and so I listened and poisoned people's minds for, for years and made money while doing it. But I remember when I became a Christian, I, I got a hold to cassettes, and one of my favorite preachers, my favorite preacher was C.D. Brooks, and I had a bag of tapes, and every time I would get in my car, I would listen to those sermons over and over and over and over again, and God was using the word to literally wash my filthy mind clean. And um, now I had gone to school, and I had been trained and I had all this wealth of information, but I still didn't have Christ. One time I went to a church in New York and I was attending prayer meeting. And it was unusual for a person that was my age, I was still in my 20s, not from the, the area to attend prayer meeting. But I go to prayer meeting and the elder who was leading out Bless his heart. He said something that I didn't agree with. And you know, the prayer meeting turned into a contest between him and I for like 40 minutes because I knew some spirit of prophecy. We had to read the nine volumes of the testimonies and, you know, I had all these classes based on. So I was going, you know, word for word for 40 minutes with this man with my little 20-year-old self. No Christ. No Christ. Information, but no Christ. And then the Lord, uh, the Lord brought a couple of special people, and I'm going to kind of skip over a few things, but the Lord brought some special people into my life. Um, one of them was my wife, because when you think you know a lot, generally... God uses the people who know you to help remind you that you're not ready to be translated just yet. You know, and one of those people was my wife, in my experience, um, because all of my imperfections, which didn't exist prior to my marriage, seemed to just float to the surface when she came around. And so um, an anger issue that I never had that I'd always had control over, all of a sudden became out of control. A selfishness issue, which I did not believe existed, all of a sudden became all-consuming. And So as I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, please fix her, because obviously she's brought all these things to bear upon me. But as I'm praying for the Lord to fix my wife, guess what the Lord does? The Lord reveals to me that it's not her who needs to be fixed. But it's me. It's me. And then the Lord does something else. He introduces another person into my life. A little baby boy, six pounds, Israel. Israel comes into my life. And um, I thought that I had some issues with my wife. And now when Israel comes in, now I've really got some issues. And so, again, Lord, please help these children. We live in a sinful world. It's not your son. It's you. The Lord has given me, besides Israel, three other character builders. Abigail, Gabriel, and Angel. And along with my wife, they take care of the four cardinal directions of humility and character building in my experience. But all of that was to bring me back to the point where I could take my eyes off of myself and off of my performance and put my eyes on Jesus. Because when you have a lot of information, the first response of the human heart 
And I, I tell everyone that I study the Bible with in preparation for baptism, I tell them this. Your first response to God is good, but it's not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. I literally tell them this as we're there in my office studying. Man, you want to get baptized. It's wonderful. We've been going through, this, through the studies. But I want you to mark this down. Your first response to God is good, but it's not enough. They're like, what? I said, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this at another time. And this goes back to something I mentioned in the beginning that I experienced. Remember, we talked about patchwork religion, how you want to just change this or change that. When God first speaks to us, he speaks to us in terms of the things in our lives that are offensive to him. Yes or no? Whether that be music, what you watch on television, if you watch television, what you're doing on the computer, what you're doing with your spare time, how you treat the people who are close to you in your life. The spirit of God will convict us about all those things. And you'll say, man, I got to change. Right. Lord, I surrender my anger to you. Lord, I surrender my entertainment choices to you. Lord, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. That's good. But that's not really what God is after now, is it? What does he really want? Say it again. He really wants you. And I would venture to say that most of us, whenever God says or speaks to us and says, give me your heart, our response is, Lord, take my stuff. Now, some of that stuff needs to go, right? So that's good, but it's not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. Because what God is really after is he's after you and I. Now, why don't we trust God enough to give him ourselves? Why is it easier for us to give him our things than it is for us to give him ourselves? I would venture to say tonight, the reason that it's easier for us to give God our things than it is to give him ourselves is because we really do not know who God is. We really don't know who he is. Now, I told you, I showed you that picture of me with a hairbrush at two. From that time, it is possible for you to go through Sabbath school classes every week. It's possible for you to go through Pathfinders and have two sashes, one this way and one this way, filled with honors and all that is included in that it's possible for you to go to Christian schools. It's possible for you to do mission work for God. It's possible for you to even be engaged in ministry for God and still not know who he is. It's possible. It's possible for each one of us to have a mistaken idea about who God is. It was not until I fell in love with Jesus that I understood all the other things in my life. And I want to illustrate that to you. I want to illustrate that to you by, by telling you that um, there are things in life that we all are afraid of. And our fears are the opposite side of our desires. Our fears are the opposite side of our desires. For instance, I told you all that I was afraid that if I made the choice to get married, that my wife would do what? That she would leave me. That was a fear. Really, my desire was for unconditional acceptance. That's what I wanted. But I didn't know that. It was the fear side that was really controlling the decisions that I was making in my life. And I'm going to suggest tonight that each and every one of us has things that we are afraid of in our lives, whether we are conscious of those things right now or not. But those are only one side of the coin, as it were. Really, the other side is our desires. And because we do not understand what we desire and we do not understand who Jesus is, we don't see that he's the best 
thing for us. One of my one of my fears is to be rejected. And this is when the gospel really came alive in my life. When I began to understand that the gospel, you know, we'll talk for those of you who will be here for the week. You'll hear about the great controversy. All that's powerful stuff. Wonderful stuff. The cosmic concept of what's going on between Christ and Satan, the forces of good and evil. All that's wonderful. But I didn't understand where I fit into all of that. Yes, there's a personal uh, conflict that's going on between Christ and Satan over every soul, but I did not understand that the words of the gospel, the very reason that Jesus came here to this planet Earth, not only to die, but also to reveal the Father's love, the, the love of the Godhead for every member of the human family, that he came here to speak directly to our fears and to our desires. My fear of rejection the word of God speaks directly to Jesus says, I will never do what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can you imagine hungering for something and not even knowing that you're hungry for it? There's a book called Into Thin Air. And in that book, Into Thin Air, he, John Krakauer tells the story about uh, a climbing expedition to the top of Mount Everest. And when they made it to the top, there was a guy who decided he was going to stay back a little bit longer to enjoy the view. He came down. And of course, being in that thin atmosphere, he needed oxygen. So they had left oxygen canisters at various uh, uh, um, markers along the way to, to line the descent of the, the party as they came down. Well, they had made sure to leave oxygen for him. But because he had gone so long without oxygen, he was unaware of the fact that he had oxygen right there in front of him. He radioed to the rest of the party. You guys left me without any oxygen. No, we didn't. There's oxygen there for you. Just take it. There's nothing in here. His mind was gone. His mind was gone because of a lack of oxygen. Unfortunately, that gentleman perished. He perished on the top of Mount Everest when the very thing he needed, he held in his hands. And that's why I believe my conversion experience, and I still don't believe it's done, and your conversion experience, you know, when we look back, you remember Joseph, sometimes we paint wonderful pictures of Bible characters. We think Joseph just went through all that he did. I know God has a plan for me. No, he didn't. You mean to tell me when his brothers threw him in that pit, this is all a part of God's plan for my life? When they drug him up and sold him to the Ishmaelites, this is one step closer to God's purpose for my life being fulfilled. When he was a slave in Potiphar's house, when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown in the Pharaoh's dungeon, yes, Lord, thank you for bringing me here. None of this would have been possible. Mm -mm. Joseph did not understand all the things that were taking place in his life until he was almost 40 years old and he sees his brothers kneeling down in the dust and the dreams that he had as a young man and all of the things that had taken place in his life all of a sudden made sense. So now when I look back, I see the tragedy, at least from my, of my experience, is that the very things that I craved were right there. But I didn't recognize them. In the Sabbath school classes, pathfinders, mission trips, mission service for God, the very God who I longed for was right there. But unfortunately, I did not recognize that it was him. And I didn't recognize my need for him. It was through coming to know Jesus. Coming to know Jesus, not just as the one who will grant eternal life, but coming to know Jesus as the one who really and truly is the answer to every question in my life. 
I want you to think about that tonight. Because I, I believe it's possible for you to say, yeah, 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 I know Jesus is all. But really not believe that. Believe that Jesus is the one who can give you unconditional acceptance. Believe that Jesus is the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Believe that Jesus is the one who can give you a sense of purpose. Believe that Jesus is the one who can help you to even understand what it means to be successful. Jesus really and truly is all. Without having a proper perspective on Jesus, you and I don't have a proper perspective on ourselves. As I said, the tragedy of my experience is that Jesus was there all the time. And I never even recognized it. Never even seen it. Now, I love my wife. But my wife is not all. I love my children. But my children are not all. You know, there's times when my wife doesn't accept me. Would you believe that? The nerve of this woman. There are times when my children don't accept me. Lord have mercy. There's times when the people that we hold dear cannot be there for us because of sickness, death, or just because they're human beings. But guess who's always there? Jesus. And I'm going to say I'm 38 years old, and it took me probably 30 years to discover that. 30 years. I wish I could say that I never preached to anyone until I knew Jesus was all. But I can't say that. I preached to others, but didn't know Jesus was all. I broke down prophecies to others, but didn't know Jesus was all. Maybe you have a question of whether or not Jesus is all in your life. Let me ask you this. This is the way I'll put it. If you cannot, and this is a, a very fundamental test. Remember we talked about knowing a lot of stuff. If you cannot talk to somebody about the prophecies in the Bible and show them Jesus, then you're yet to understand that Christ is all. If you can't talk to somebody about the state of the dead and show them how that points to Jesus, then you don't understand that he's all. Good information to know, but if the information doesn't ultimately bring you to Christ, then you're doing like I was for all of those years, unfortunately. Good stuff, good information, but missing out on Jesus. When you have Jesus, it not only transforms how you share with others, but it also transforms the way you treat others. Not just the folks who you can benefit from treating nice. You understand what I'm saying, right? Like your boss, your landlord, mortgage company. But if I can treat my children right, mm. if I can treat my wife right, now you think that's a given, right? Let me tell you something. Sometimes the people who are closest to us are the ones that we treat the worst. So if I can treat my wife like Christ, in the tone of my voice, the way I speak to her. If I can treat my children, yeah, the ones that I feed, the ones that I put clothes on their backs, if I can treat them like Jesus would, 
then it's evidence that I know him. And he knows me. As I said, my story is not finished. But I pray that yours isn't either. I pray that we all continue to grow. If in no other area, in this one. The one where Jesus is all. Jesus is all. Bow your heads with me. Pray together with me this evening. Loving Father and our God, we are thankful that you are still in the business of transforming lives. That this transformation that we have been talking about is not a one-time incident. It's not something that we can point to that has taken place 15, 20, 30 years ago. It's something that is ongoing. Job, who the Bible says was a perfect and an upright man, who you yourself said was a perfect and an upright man, one who feared you and hated evil. It was Job who said, after receiving a revelation and having an encounter with you, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now I can say, I have seen you. I know you. Lord, that's my prayer for myself and for each one of my friends who are here tonight that each one of us would have an ever-deepening revealing of who you are. And I pray that this would not serve just to make us better informed, but that it would serve to make us better men, better women, better sons, better daughters, better aunts, better uncles, better husbands, better wives. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus as it is our privilege to see him and to know him. Thank you for hearing and answering this humble prayer, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.